All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Resident Review Flapcast. We're happy to be back with you. How's it going, Whitney? It's going great, Nick. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm happy to be here. A lot of exciting stuff going on. It's uh, July. It's July in the hospital. No. Time. <laughs> Very exciting month. We are so thrilled to have our new interns start with us. I remember being an intern. I remember being terrified about giving Tylenol to everybody. So yeah, it's a, uh, it's the further you get away from that, the, the nicer it is to July. You can look at it more fondly, fondly. Yeah. Um, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that we are recently celebrating uh, Whitney's match at Memorial Sloan Kettering and microsurgery. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm very awesome excited. One of our other, my other uh, co-chief, Andrew Atia, matched MD Anderson. So um, we're both really thrilled. We were sad we couldn't, or we didn't uh, couples match. <laughs> couples match, we're not a couple, um, into one match, into one program. But well, we're both very excited. I can't wait to have you both back on the Microsurgery Masters Series. So it's coming up. <laughs> yeah, get real for it. A couple other cool things we have coming up uh, at Duke. We are getting ready for our flap course. Um, and this will be the first time we're in person in a while. Um, my first time attending actually, because the first year was virtual um, when I got here. And then the year after that, um, we took the year off to kind of COVID was still going on and get things ready for this year. But this is our first big year back. I know you've been pretty involved with that, right, Whitney? Yeah, it's, it's been really fun. Um, it's a great course. They've been a couple of years before COVID. It's a ton of learning. You get to meet, you know, really awesome influential microsurgeons from around the country and around the world. Um, so we're really excited to have this course back and up and running. And we have some really exciting faculty joining us this year. So something to really look forward to in August. Yeah, it's going to be great. We also just had our CMF course, um, which we do every year. Um, and that was great as well. We learned all about CMF trauma. And it's fitting. I'm on, I'm on CMF rotation right now for the first time, doing some great cases, learning a lot. It's a, a lot of new things for me, but, but I'm really enjoying it. Height of trauma season. It's good. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And we've got plenty of it. Yeah. What have you been up to? What are, what are you what rotation? You on? Um, I'm on the aesthetics rotation right now. Um, getting to rotate a lot with our chair, Dr. Marcus doing a ton of rhinoplasty. So it's been great. It's been really fun. Probably not anything I'm going to ever do. <laughs> um but you know once we come up with an indication for microsurgery and rhinoplasty i'm sure i'll be back in the game i'm sure you'll be doing you know chimeric latissimus flap on monday and then cosmetic rhino on tuesday (laughs) you can do it all Um, but i have to say i'm looking forward to this year Uh, it's gonna be really good i think we're on service again together for at least a month or two which is great uh, where the team is back in action yeah, it's going to be really good. Get the team back in gear. I can't wait. Um, so I kind of think this series, kind of all of our past episodes, and hopefully this episode too, will be a really good lead up to the FLAC course. Um, and today we have one of our faculty from Duke, Dr. Sisk, joining us. And we're going to be talking about uh, one of the workhorse flaps in plastic surgery, and that's going to be the latissimus. Um, so prior to getting Dr. Sisk in to, to talk to us a little bit about uh, kind of some of his pearls and expertise on the topic, and we're going to go through some of the basics. Uh, so the latissimus, latissimus flap is one of the largest muscles in the body, as we all know. And this is clearly one of our workhorse flaps in plastic surgery. We use it all over the body for all different kinds of indications, uh, from breast reconstruction to chest wall. Um, we can use it as a free flap everywhere. We can use it uh, as a pedicle flap for multiple different indications. 
Um, and what really makes this flap so great, uh, there's a variety of reasons, but another reason is that it's based off the subscapular system, which has uh, such a, a rich variety of options um, for individual and chimeric interesting flaps that we can do. Um, so really just a versatile and great flop overall. Excited to talk more about it. So um, in terms of the big picture for anatomy of this flap, it is really the posterior trunk anatomy that you're thinking about, the latissimus. Um, it originates from the 7th through 12th thoracic vertebrae, um, lumbar and sacral process, spinal processes, as well as from the middle outer rim of the iliac crest. It then inserts upon the humerus. Notably, the superior border of the muscle is covered by the trapezius, but otherwise it is superficial to all other muscles in the flap, making it uh, easy to dissect. Also um, has great perforators straight through the muscle to the skin, which we're going to get into a discussion of a little bit later. Um, we also love this flap because it has a very, very reliable vascular anatomy. Um, it's a Matheson high type five muscle flap, which means it has one dominant pedicle, um, and several secondary minor pedicles that the flap can actually survive on. It's kind of the analogous muscle to the pectoralis muscle on the front. It kind of, uh, has a very similar vascular anatomy. Um, the dominant muscle to the latissimus muscle is, uh, the dominant, sorry, artery to the latissimus muscle is the thoracodorsal. Uh, this is off the subscapular system or the subscapular artery, which arises from the third portion of the axillary artery, giving off the circumflex scapular angular branch, serratus branch, and then continuing down to the thoracodorsal. Um, as Nick previously said, all these other branches off of the subscapular system can be uh, harvested along with the thoracodorsal and the uh, latissimus flap as secondary flaps to make a cool chimeric flap for interesting and fun defects around the body. Um, notably, the thoracodorsal does uh, divide into um, a lateral branch, which runs uh, parallel to the anterior border of the muscle, and a medial branch, which runs parallel to the upper border of the muscle. This allows us to split the latissimus into two flaps or just use um, the muscle based on the lateral branch um, in a muscle sparing fashion. The secondary um, arterial uh, supply to the latissimus is off of the intercostal perforators. Um, it allows us to use this as a turnover flap to cover posterior trunk wounds. Uh, the venous drainage follows the arterial system and is mainly through the thoracodorsal vein, which runs with the thoracodorsal artery. And the innervation is through the thoracodorsal nerve, um, which also has a medial and lateral branch which runs parallel to the artery. We do cut that when we are taking it as a free flap. So uh, just a a couple more details about the flap. Um, we'll get into a lot of this with Dr. Sisk, but uh, the pedicle will typically enter the flap about 10 to 12 centimeters below the posterior axillary fold. Um, and then, so prior to that, it's gonna be running underneath or on the deep surface of the flap, and then we'll actually enter the muscle at that point. The flap can be harvested in many different positions. Uh, it can be harvested in a prone position, a lateral, sloppy lateral, or even the supine position. Uh, and there are many modifications to this flap overall. When you mentioned the split latissimus, um, we talked about the turnover latissimus. You could do an extended latissimus. Um, we were talking about taking additional uh, skin and subcutaneous tissue for something like breast reconstruction. Or you can even do a, a TDAP flap as well, which is where we don't take any muscle at all, but still based off the same uh, system. Uh, in terms of post-operative care for this flap, we often talk about the donor site morbidity um, because this is one of our largest and major uh, posterior trunk muscles. Um, but the typical answer is that despite the size of this muscle, there's minimal donor site morbidity in terms of functional deficits. 
Some, some studies will cite up to a 7% decrease in shoulder function, um, but this is pretty variable throughout the literature. And anecdotally, I've, I've heard an attending in the past uh, tell me that they had a video of, a, of someone doing a pull-up that had a, a latissimus flap previously. So uh, clearly not limiting that guy. The, the common ones we do hear about, though, are like what we'll probably mention later is rowers, swimmers, and climbers, like rock climbers. They oftentimes are the ones that you would think about in terms of sparing their latissimus flap. Uh, and then lastly, kind of rounding out some of the basics here, some of the most common complications that we talk about, the most common by far would be seroma formation. And this, because, this is because this is such a large muscle and creating such a large amount of dead space. Uh, so there's different options and how to avoid or prevent this. Uh, a couple of them being compression therapies using some kind of wrap or garment afterwards. We can use progressive tension sutures. Um, and then there's been different options proposed, like things like fibrin and glue and uh, steroid, topical steroids or things like that. Kind of a lot of different fancy things have been tried because this is such a common problem. Um, but the mainstay is going to be the use of drains, typically for an extended period of time and, until you're relatively confident that uh, you're evacuated all the fluid that you're going to be able to. Um, so I think that kind of rounds out our, our discussion of some of the basics of the flap. And I think we'll get Dr. Sisk on the line and dive a little bit deeper into the latissimus. All right. So now we're going to bring in our expert, uh, Dr. Sisk. Dr. Sisk trained in both general and plastic surgery uh, at Boston in at Harvard and Brigham Women's Hospital. After this, he completed a fellowship in microsurgery at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. After fellowship, he began his career at Ohio State and now has just completed his first year on faculty at Duke. Uh, Dr. Sisk is an exceptional surgeon, a great teacher and mentor, and we are so grateful to have him at Duke and we are so excited to have him on the podcast today. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Sisk. Thanks a lot for having me, guys. I appreciate it. So Dr. Sisk, I you know, to get this started, um, the latissimus flap obviously is a workhorse flap that can be used both, uh, pedicled and free, but we just wanted to get some of your general thoughts on, um, specifically the best uses of the latissimus flap in terms of, you know, it's used as a free flap. We all know kind of, or have a good experience with it as a pedicled flap for breast reconstruction, but I think it's a little bit less used as a free flap. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think you you keyed in on, I think, what is the very most important and most uh, um, applicable word when it comes to this flap, which is the fact that it's just a workhorse. It used so reliably in so many different clinical scenarios, um, and it's and it's kind of become an old standby, a really reliable flap for, for those of us who uh, need to have, you know, a tool belt full of potential options for us uh, when we when we need to to cover a defect or fill a hole. I think it's a workhorse for us for a lot of reasons. It's, it's quick and easy to perform. It's a, it's a relatively easy flap to raise. It's got a really reliable blood supply. You know, it's got an axial blood supply. In fact, it's got two separate uh, axial blood supplies within the muscle itself, plus very, very reliable perforators, which as you guys know, you, you don't even really need to look for those perforators before you design a skin island. Most of the time, you just know they're going to be there, particularly along the anterior border of the muscle. Plus the, another, another major factor that makes it so, so indispensable for us is the fact that it lies on the subscapular axis, which means that you've got all these other plug and play options that you can include along with it uh, for chimeric flaps. Uh, which makes it an incredibly versatile and creative tool for us, um, you know, including the periscapular, the scapular, the serratus, 
And then on top of that, probably the biggest reason that this ends up being so useful for us is it's just a big muscle. You know, it's got a very broad surface area. So when you are at a loss as to what options might be able to help you for a really big lower extremity defect, for example, latissimus just is always jumps to the top of the list. Awesome. And then uh, again, kind of just big picture, what do you see as some of uh, the major disadvantage of, of the latissimus flap? If there are any. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, good question. I mean, it's, it, it, there, there really aren't. I think, I think that, you know, one thing that you can certainly say is when you opt to use latissimus, you are taking away a functional muscle from that patient. And, and it's something to be considered. You know, there's been a great deal of research that's been done over the years to look at what the donor site morbidity actually is from a, you know, uh, from a granular functional perspective. And uh, what's really been shown is that the, the functional, uh, there's, there's really no functional deficiency that's caused by uh, harvesting the latissimus unless you're an elite level rower or swimmer, which is what I tell my patients that are considering latissimus breast reconstruction. So, so there really aren't that many downsides to it. You know, if it's, if, if it's performed in conjunction with the serratus uh, and you take the entire serratus, for example, then you can have some functional issues related to winging of the scapula and things like that. And the same could also be true if you're, if you're including uh, your thoracodorsal nerve um, as part of your harvest as well, obviously, which is, which is obviously going to be true with, with, well, pretty much every time you use this flap. So, so there, there are some potential, uh, some potential functional issues that go along with the position and the, and the control of the scapula. Um, but beyond that, I, I really would struggle to find any significant downsides to using this flap. That's obviously why it's kind of written about in all these books as one of those big workhorse flaps. I think that most people really prefer it um, because it doesn't have that many downsides. One of the things that I think is actually interesting in terms of harvesting this flap is from a resident perspective is how to position the patient. It's something that we always get asked by the uh, nurses before the attendings come in the room. And I think we always somehow get it wrong. Uh, so what would you, what do you think is your most preferred way to harvest uh, um, latissimus flap? Well, I think this goes, this is part and parcel of having a flap that is so versatile. It depends on what I'm using the flap for. You know, if I'm trying to get every last square centimeter of the muscle to cover a gigantic defect, then I don't think that you can really assure yourself you're going to get everything unless you're in a true lateral position. Um, that's going to be how you're going to be, be able to access the spinal midline and the iliac crest and, and, and really make sure you get to the very, the very most distant reaches of the muscle. But for most purposes, you're not, when you're when you're not really going to need to guarantee yourself that you need every single last muscle fiber, um, I actually think that just doing things in sloppy lateral or even fully supine, uh, you're able to really harvest the vast majority of, of the muscle. And and it's really true. I mean, at least when it comes to doing a split latissimus, using the the vertical, you know, the, the descending branch of the of the thoracodorsal. Um, you can literally within five minutes of starting the case, you can make your incision, get underneath the muscle and see the entire course of that pedicle all the way down um, in, in a fully supine position. So, so the short answer to your question is it depends. Um, and I think even in the, the relatively small number of cases that I've done here with you guys, you've seen me uh, raise them in, in all those various positions, full lateral, sloppy lateral, and fully supine. 
Yeah, I was going to say, I think uh, I had seen prior to you starting here, I'd seen a couple kind of traditional autismus flaps. And then I think Whitney and I were both with you in a case where we, we harvest it uh, in supine position. I thought that was awesome. It was a great case. Yeah, it speeds things up a lot for sure. We were also both very skeptical when you said, it's fine, we're going to do it supine. Dr. Sis lost his, his mind. Uh, um, so kind of moving on from positioning. So we have our patient, I guess, let's say we're, we're in a case where the patient is amenable to uh, harvest in the supine position. If we only need, let's say half of the muscle or so, can you talk us through um, kind of your markings and maybe the, the initial steps of the operation and kind of what you see as some of the, the sticking points or some of the operative pearls that you may have? Yeah, sure. So, so you know, I think one of the complicating factors here is that I think my, my approach and my technique for raising the flaps actually does differ, whether we're, depending on whether we're doing the supine or doing it lateral. Um, but if, we're, if you want to talk about doing things in the supine position, first of all, this needs, you need to be using the flap. Um, for an indication that does not require a big skin paddle. Um, that would be certainly one of the things that, that if, if you need a big skin paddle, in addition to needing the entirety of the muscle, then you're going to be doing this pro probably in a more lateral position. But in supine, um, usually the way that I plan to make the incision is I, I mark the patient preoperatively. I have them stand up. I, I mark the anterior, what I, what I perceive to be the anterior border of the muscle. Um, in thinner patients, you, you can actually palpate that in, in uh, thicker patients, you may have to make a little bit of a guess based on other anatomic landmarks. But uh, I, when, once the patient's supine and we're ready to go, I'd simply make an incision right along that line, the line that I've marked as the anterior border of the muscle. Dissect down through uh, subcutaneous fat with electrocautery until I find the anterior border of the muscle. And then I'll grasp it with a couple of Alice clamps. Uh, again, trying to get as broad a view of that anterior border as possible. And I, and I start my dissection in a submuscular plane. Uh, sometimes, you know, especially the lower you get down on the muscle, the more inferior you get, uh, you may get into a little bit of sticky dissection, peeling the latissimus off the serratus fibers, or even further down off the, uh, the uh, uh, external oblique. But, uh, but once you find that plane, then it's a really easy submuscular dissection. Again, you can spot the pedicle usually traveling one or two centimeters from the anterior border of the muscle. And I perform that submuscular dissection as far as I possibly can get until we're pretty much at the spinal midline if we're trying to take a bunch of the muscle um, or until we've got enough of the muscle that I'm confident that, uh, that we've got the flap the size that we need it to be. And then after that, um, I'll start my dissection uh, between the, the uh, muscle and the skin. So in that subcuticular plane, in that subcutaneous plane rather. And uh, again, just dissect out as long as, as far as we need uh, in order to be able to capture the size of the flap that we need. And then um, I start my uh, division of the muscle inferiorly. Uh, divide inferiorly uh, to the extent that we need to, and then uh, and then I'll divide it more medially closer to the spinal midline. Once we once I've kind of decided that we're uh, we've got the lower portion of the flap elevated again, repositioning our Alice clamps. I just sort of start raising it up inferior to superior. Another spot that, that things can get a little bit sticky is uh, is as you get a little bit closer to the scapula, you get into this relatively thick fat pad. And uh, once, you, once you've identified that, I really try to stay as close as I can to the muscle safely, because uh, if you do get down deep into that fat pad and you start lifting up a lot of the fat with the muscle, then it's really easy to get your dissection down all the way underneath the scapula. 
and uh, and sometimes that if you get there, I get I get a little bit worried about uh, actually disinserting the serratus a bit from the scapular tip. But once you've identified that, you, you stay stay up close to the muscle, being sure not to injure your pedicle as well. And at that point, you're you're kind of home free. You know, once you're once you've got uh, once you've got the muscle up a little bit higher, closer to the scapula, the muscle's not quite as broad. You can often kind of get your fingers around the entirety of the muscle and and, and give it a little bit of a pull. Uh, and then the dissection proceeds again inferiorly to superiorly, um, kind of encircling the muscle. It goes deep and superficial and deep and superficial uh, until we're up high on the pedicle. And then you're at another decision point uh, because at some point you need to make you need to divide uh, the insertion of the muscle off the humerus. Uh, and usually I don't do that until I've got a very clear view of the pedicle, three or four centimeters proximal to uh, to where the where the pedicle um, actually you know invests onto the muscle itself. After that, get a nice big retractor in there. You get somebody up over the top of the shoulder, pulling real hard to to give yourself the best view you can. Um, get in there with a fine dissecting tool and, and you can take the pedicle up all the way to the subscapular. I don't think I'm missing anything there. In, in broad strokes, that's that's kind of how I how I approach it. That was great. Uh, that is uh, exactly how I remembered it when we, when we saw it in that case. Two things I remember that kind of stuck out to me for that case, having been the first time I had seen you uh, harvest it supine. I, I guess for some reason, I imagined that it'd be more difficult to get good visualization, but it seemed like as you... Uh, once, once you find that interior border, things kind of like fell toward you and then you had a really good view of everything. I remember we got a really good look at the, at the pedicle as we were, um, kind of moving and, and, uh, elevating that flap. Uh, I'm sure that had a lot to do with the kind of expert exposure that you were giving, but, uh, that was just something I wasn't expecting. And it was really good visualization. That's what I remember. No, I think I, that has nothing to do with any expertise that that has everything to do with anatomy. And I think that's actually one of the things that was a pleasant surprise for me. The first time I did this in a sloppy lateral or a supine position is, you know, if you're, if you, if you know what planes are looking for, they really do just show themselves to you. Gravity helps. You know, I think one of the things that um, other than just taking the muscle as is, um, I think one of the things that makes the latissimus muscle, like you said at the beginning, so special or so cool is that you can take it with a bunch of other things off of the subscapular system, which makes it such a, um, I think, unique flap. I, I, you know, Fred, who said it, but someone a couple of years ago at the flap course said that the subscapular system was obviously their favorite system to work with because there were so many things that you could use it for. So can you talk us, to us a little bit about uses of the latissimus flap in a chimeric fashion, like what other flaps you've taken with the latissimus flap and what are the uses that, or what have you used those uh, kind of chimeric flaps for, for reconstruction? Yeah. So, um, I mean, the, the obvious one and one that I've used now a couple of times for truly massive lower extremity defects is uh, chimeric latissimus and serratus muscle. You know, when you, when you really, um, when, you, when you know you can't get by with a single muscle, even in a relatively big person, um, but you also want to avoid uh, the potential risks associated with additional um, vascular anastomoses, then you can lift both the, the latissimus and the serratus off the same primary pedicle, since all you have to do is, is do a fine dissection of the serratus branch identify it, make sure you identify it and don't divide it when you're lifting your latissimus muscle. And, uh, and then you can carry the entirety of the serratus along with your latissimus. And, you know, the serratus is not nearly as big as the latissimus, but it fans out really nicely from the latissimus and you can get a whole lot more surface area covered with it. 
I just did a case now, as a matter of fact, we're going to be taking this guy back for second stage uh, uh, with ortho to replace his uh, antibiotic spacer. But now several months ago, did a, a massive lower extremity defect with a with a chimeric latissimus and serratus. And that was uh, really satisfying to get that all done with a single flap. Another thing that I've done numerous times for unusually shaped defects is I've actually harvested the entire, you might not call this a chimeric flap, but um, I've harvested the entirety of the latissimus. And then on the back table, I've divided the latissimus down its length. So I've kept the two individual axial branches separate from one another. And that way, if you have sort of an L-shaped defect, you've got a vertical defect on the leg and then also some uh, um, circumferential component that needs a little bit of a transverse flap, um, then you can actually, you can take your latissimus and take it from a big triangular muscle into, a, into an L-shaped muscle uh, and you get, get a little bit more distance out of each of those two components too. And then of course, um, you know, using the transverse branch off your thoracodorsal which ultimately gives the, the uh, circumflex scapular. You you can take the you can take a portion of bone. You can take the the spine of this or the uh, the, the uh, lateral border of the scapula uh, along with uh, latissimus muscle if you need any sort of uh, coverage for a bony defect as well. Those are I think those defects are a little um, a little bit more nuanced and a little bit uh, rarer to 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 try to find. I mean. Usually when you're talking about having to use something as big as a latissimus muscle, you're using it because you need soft tissue rather than bone. But, uh, but you never know when something's going to, when, when some unusual defect is going to rear its head. And, and, and you, the fact that you do have, this, the fact that the subscapular system has so many different, uh, like I said, plug and play options available to it. You always know that you can pull that out of your back pocket too. Those, those definitely make for uh, interesting cases, cases and, and great flaps. One of the components of that system, obviously, is the thoracodorsal artery perforator. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about the, the TDAP flap and, and when you consider using this, either in conjunction with uh, other components of that system or even just on its own? Like, What do you see as a, a good indication for a TDAP flap? Yeah, so I'll be honest. I think when I think about a TDAP flap, um, as it relates to indications, I think about something that's completely different than your conventional indications for a latissimus. You know, latissimus is a big piece of meat. Um, you know, you need a scalp covered latissimus. If it, you need a, a big lower extremity defect covered latissimus, it's, 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 it gets the job done because it can, because it brings a whole bunch of well vascularized tissue into play. A TDAP flap is, is a lot cuter. You know, it's, it's, it doesn't have nearly the surface area. You're using a skin paddle alone. You're not, you're not relying on that broad muscle to uh, cover a big wound and stick down to hardware. Um, you're using a, a small skin paddle. And so, you know, I think about the indications for a TDAP as being very similar to the indications for uh, a radial forearm or a small ALT or, or, a, you know, a, a medial sural artery perforator flap, the sorts of defects that can be filled with um, skin and subcutaneous tissue only. Um, now, granted, because of the reliability of the thoracodorsal artery perforators, you're going to be able to get a lot, a, probably a larger skin paddle than you would with some of the other uh, options that I just mentioned, with the exception of maybe ALT. But, uh, but nonetheless, you know, I, I do think of this as being a totally separate indication. I will say the one component of my practice that does benefit from having the TDAP uh, in my arsenal 
is still is breast reconstruction. And when I use it, obviously not as a free flap, but as a pedicled Tdap, it gives you a nice option for large lumpectomy defects or quadrantectomies or large segmentectomies from the breast, particularly, well, almost exclusively in the lateral breast, rather than telling the patient, sorry, there's really not much I can do for you, except maybe just reduce your breast in an oncoplastic breast reduction. Um, you can actually bring in enough tissue to reconstruct a, a segment or a quadrant of the breast uh, using a Tdap uh, in pedicled fashion. So that is one instance or one, one uh, ap- application of the flap that I've used uh, with some regularity. I think something you touched on about the latissimus in general is something else I wanted to ask you. Um, and that is specifically for, I guess I was going to go with scalp, but really any kind of hardware coverage. This is actually something we're looking at, uh, a paper we're hoping to write soon. Um, when you think about covering hardware, let's say uh, the cranioplasty hardware, how do you think about the decision between a muscle, something like the latissimus versus an ALT? Uh, and the reason I'm asking is because something that we've talked about recently is how over time, obviously we have this flap atrophy and there's been some reports of maybe delayed several years down the road, a plate extruding through this muscle, even though we had such robust coverage, the flap did great, no complications, um, but just seems with time that atrophy can be so significant that our plate is coming all, almost all the way through the flap. Yeah, I think that's a valid concern. Um, it's certainly true. You know, obviously you denervate the flap when you harvest it as a free flap, unless you're re-innervating it, you can expect that muscle is going to atrophy over time. Um, and so, so I think it's, it's, a, it's a totally valid concern, um, probably a little bit less uh, reliable over a span of years or decades than a fasciocutaneous flap would be. So yeah, no, I think that's I think that's a very valid concern, and obviously, you know, anytime you de-innervate a muscle, you're going to expect that that muscle will atrophy over time, and uh, it may be true that over years and and over decades, as a lot of these patients might end up still having on their uh, in in their lifetime, you, you could see some at, some uh, atrophy within those tissues that could lead to problems uh, related to hardware. Um, I think that in certainly in the moment, we always feel like things. Uh, we, we set the stage for a nice, flat, smooth contour that we're laying the flap on. Um, but it's obviously true that any sorts of edges that might develop over time, whether they're there from the outset or whether they, whether they develop over time uh, with changes in anatomy over, over years, um, any, any sorts of edges or, or ridges could potentially cause uh, problems down the road. Um, you know, the other, the age old argument between muscle flaps and fasciocutaneous flaps as it relates to putting them on hardware has to do with the fact that you can generally re-raise fasciocutaneous flaps off hardware more easily than, than muscle flaps. And so I think my two rules when I'm thinking about what I'm planning to put down uh, over some hardware, uh, particularly in the, in the scalp, like you just said, um, are you know, number one, is this, do I think this is the last time that I'm ever going to be back in uh, this surgical site? If not, then if at all possible, if we have enough surface area from an ALT or some other fasciocutaneous option, I I would certainly give that more thought. And then the second question is, uh, is the patient going to be receiving radiation postoperatively? Because that's the other factor that could theoretically cause 
more rapid or more significant atrophy within tissues. It's going to cause atrophy within any tissues due to the uh, radiation fibrosis that's occurred, but uh, that could become even more problematic in a very thin atrophied muscle over time. So I think those are, those are the two things. Definitely a valid question, a valid concern, and uh, just another, another step in the algorithm in trying to figure out what's going to be best for your, for your hardware coverage. I think one of our, um, you know, I think that's actually really thoughtful because it is one of the things that we think a lot about in terms of, um, especially when we see a lot of these scalp wounds, it's something that we see a lot on the craniofacial service, then kind of, they get like punted over to the, to our reconstructive team, um, for, for consideration of free flap. So it is something we start thinking a lot about. I know that Nick is, is kind of leading the charge and trying to do a really good paper and some research on this topic. One of the things that we also deal with in the hospital as residents, um, I'd love to get your thoughts on are, uh, is really the donor site, um, complications and specifically seromas, you know, I've seen and heard attendings have really different approaches to preventing seromas, including compression therapy and progressive tension sutures and drains and fibrin glues. And we've used all these different things, but my question to you is what, what do you prefer and what is your typical management of the donor site? So <clears throat> I will, I will be the first to say that uh, I tend to run my practice based on prior successes and failures. And one thing that I knock on wood have not really encountered so far is um, seromas in, in latissimus donor sites. And so I think that maybe, maybe to a greater extent than a lot of others, I'm not so afraid of of, um, of donor site seromas that it's going to really change the way that I manage things. Um, one specific point that I'll make about progressive tension sutures is that not in my own practice so much, but a couple of times in training, I did see the use of progressive tension sutures in latissimus donor site closures lead to postoperative hematomas. Um, you know, if you think about it, what you're tacking that superficial layer down to in a lot of cases is muscle and fascia and really well vascularized tissues that don't necessarily have a ton of tissue integrity in some cases. If you're putting those down to chest wall muscles or intercostal muscles, um, it's, it's, it's totally conceivable that as those patients start to mobilize a little bit post-operative day, number one, two, three, moving around the hallways, um, that they could tear those progressive tension sutures out and that could lead to post-operative bleeding. So that has turned me off a little bit to progressive tension sutures. The, the really, mo really the most significant thing that I'll do uh, in that respect is that I will occasionally when we're closing the superficial fascia along the incision, I'll close it in a, a number of three-point sutures. So, you know, superficial or superficial fascia to superficial fascia to, uh, to whatever is lying underneath it on the chest wall. But I won't do multiple layers of progressive tension sutures. Uh, I also haven't tried fibrin glues or those sorts of things. I usually just go with a number of drains, uh, typically either two or three drains. Um, and the third drain often will kind of snake along the track. If, if I'm using it in pedicled fashion, it'll snake along the track of where the, the um, flap is going. But I almost always use two dedicated drains to the donor site, uh, usually 19 French drains. So, you know, nice big pipes. Um, and I leave them in. I'm pretty conservative with how long I leave them in. I mean, they, they really do end up being 
um, guided entirely by drain outputs. And I wait until I never take out two drains at the same time. And I wait until each drain puts out uh, less than 30 cc's a day for two consecutive days. In, in my experience, that doesn't lead to drains being in place for longer than four or five weeks. Um, but four or five weeks is not uncommon. That's really interesting, especially that, that note about the, uh, the progressive tension sutures leading to hematoma potentially, or at least seeing a correlation there. I wonder if that has uh, been shown, or if you look at some of these studies that compare the, the different options for donor site closure, if, if maybe that's kind of somewhere buried in there that no one's really noticed before. I don't know. It looks like it sounds like another paper. I love it. We're just racking them up here. <laughs> so I think that's all of our clinical questions for you. That was awesome. Thank you. Wrapping up, we always like to finish with kind of like one fun slash, you know, interesting bonus question. And what we have for you is thinking about kind of your, your path to where you're at now and, and all the years of training. Can you think of any kind of memorable piece of advice or, uh, or someone, something that one of your mentors said that really stuck with you? Um, and then kind of in a, in a similar vein, or is there any one of these pieces of advice or mantras in your head that you hear while you're operating um, that kind of always sticks with you uh, from, from one of your mentors as you're coming through? Good questions. And I kind of, I hear those as being two different questions. And so I'm going to answer them in two different ways. But so as far as the best piece of advice is concerned, I think it's definitely true. And it rings more and more and more true the further along I get. And it relates to to finding mentors. I mean, I really do think that the very, very best way to find your path and to, you know, figure out what it's going to take to make you happy and fulfilled and successful in your career is to surround yourself with mentors who know you and who uh, think like you and who take you under their wings and, and really do want to see you do the very best that you can. You know, th those, those people are rare. Um, but when you find them, you really need to, uh, to first of all, acknowledge it and nurture those relationships because they end up doing a lot more for you than just about anything else. Um, at least that's been my experience. And then as far as the mantra that I do here uh, in my head while I'm operating, I've never been one to, I've never been good at memorizing quotes. It's just, for whatever reason, it's not something that really sticks with me. And I'm always jealous of the people who get up and give their grand rounds presentations or take the podiums at the big meetings. And they've, and they just rattle off quotes from people that they look up to. I just can't do that. But the one, the one that always stuck with me, maybe because we heard it so much in residency came from Julian Prebaz. And it was, if it makes sense, it'll probably work. And, you know, Dr. Prebez had a way of doing things um, that just seemed magical and nobody could, nobody could ever see themselves becoming the type of surgeon that he was and nobody could ever understand how he made some of the things that he did work. I mean, this, these concepts of prefabricated, pre-laminated and prefabricated flaps, I mean, it just seems like science fiction. It seems like magic. But he was so incredibly principled in the way that he thought about things and there was no there was no move that he made that he hadn't thought about for hours or days and and i think that that sort of preparation and that sort of adherence to principles and understanding uh, what allows things to work you know what what it is about the anatomy or what it is about the physiology of the system that we're working with that allows things to work 
allowed him to make decisions that as far-fetched as they might've seemed. I mean, when you really broke them down, you realize they were totally anchored in principle. And I think that, that that's something, maybe not so much while I'm operating, but while I'm thinking about clinical problems, it just really, it, it reminds me constantly to just stop and think and, you know, don't necessarily jump at the first option that seems like the most obvious one to solve a problem, but really mine the resources that we have, mine the fund of knowledge that we have, um, understand the problem to the, to the very best of our abilities, and then, and then come to a conclusion as to what might be the best solution. I think that's awesome. I mean, I, I, um, I am also not one for remembering very many quotes. Um, and unfortunately, the one I have remembered is no fire. Um, so I, I hope that that's also a good one. Yeah. Yeah. No fire in surgery. Um, that was a, that's a really good piece of pearl of advice I've got been given by one of my attendings at Duke versus <laughs> a little bit more profound and thoughtful, <laughs> although I suppose we don't want fires either. <laughs> no, that, that was awesome. Dr. Sisk. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I think this is going to be a great episode and, and we were talking about kind of on our intro uh, section. I think this is a great lead up to the flat course. Um, we're really looking forward to it. We're looking forward to seeing you there. And I, th- I think our listeners will really get something out of this. So thank you again. Pleasure. Again, thanks so much for having me. Keep up the good work, guys. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.